If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through verse 27 this morning. We got a lot to cover. Prophecy, prayer, and taxes. Any one of those things would be a sermon in and of themselves. A lot to cover this morning. In fact, my son Walker down here, he sits through both services. He said, Dad, that Auburn-Kentucky game comes on about 1.15 or so, all right? So he's watching the clock for me. He'll give me the signal. You remember as we look at these verses, uh, Jesus has been instructing his guys on this mission that he's going to hand off to them. This really, even though some of these things will occur in a public fashion, this is really about Jesus uh, training up the 12 for the mission that he's going to hand off to them. He's got about a year. In fact, he's probably at this point got about six months prior to uh, the cross and the crucifixion. And so he knows I've got to invest these guys. I've got to train them up for Uh, for this ministry I'm going to give them. And what he's going to do in this text, there's there's a lot of topics here, but I really think we're going to see, first of all, he's going to confirm to his guys that I am the Christ. I'm perfectly fulfilling the prophecies concerning me. So I am the Christ. They're beginning to get it. They don't really understand it, but he's going to confirm it again. I'm the Christ. And then he's going to teach them that if you will rely upon me, if you'll set your heart to complete my work and you'll rely upon me, I will give you the power and the provision that you need to do what I've called you to do. Isn't that good news? Because it's the same message for us this morning. That God doesn't promise to bless our plans. He doesn't bless our mission. He blesses his. But if we will set our heart to his mission and rely upon him, then all the power and provision of heaven stands ready to equip us with all we need to complete his work. All right, let's pray together. We'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us great clarity on what we've been called to do. That you haven't left us to our own devices to come up with some creative mission or plan. You've told us what we're to be about. And you promised us that if we'll rely upon you in this work that you've given to us, that we won't lack that you will not allow us to be put to shame, but that you'll be faithful. God, open our eyes to better understand who you are and what you've called us to do and how you've equipped us to complete this work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me, verse nine, they're coming down, mountain of transfiguration. It says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. Now think about this with me. These guys, they have just got a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. For just a moment in time, Jesus has peeled back his humanity. They've got to see Christ in all of his glory. Not only that, but they have got to hear a conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah about his death and his resurrection. And not only that, they got to hear the audible voice of God speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They get all of that, and then Jesus tells them, you can't tell anybody about it. Now, I don't know about you, but that had been the most difficult thing in the world uh, to, to, to keep that to myself and know that I can't tell anybody else about it. And the question is, why would Jesus do that? Why would he give them this great revelation of himself and then tell them not to tell anybody? Well, as we're going to continue to see in this text, they, they understand who Jesus is as the Messiah, but they don't really understand what that means. And they got a lot of questions and there's a lot of confusion in their minds about what it means that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's going to suffer and die for our sins. 
And so with that confusion, he's going to tell them, it's not time to go out and start telling everybody about this. There'll come a day when the Son of Man's risen from the dead. You're going to go out, you're going to get it, and Pentecost is going to come, and then you're going to spread the word to the entire world. But right now, you don't get it. Now's not the time to be sharing it. You know, Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary used to say, if it's the mist in the pulpit, it'll be a fog in the pew. In other words, if you as a pastor don't get it, don't, don't start sharing it. And that's really what he's saying to these guys. You don't have a full understanding. You will, but don't go telling people right now. Then look with me in verse 10, and it says, And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, again, you've got uh, to be reminded that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these stories. Mark tells us uh, that, he had, that the disciples had other questions that they didn't ask. They, they were really wondering about what it meant to be risen from the dead. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in a resurrection at the last day, but they had no concept of a personal resurrection of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. And so they have questions about that, but that's a question that they don't ask. And we've all been there. We've all been in a classroom setting where we know we really don't have a clue and we want to ask a question, but we're fearful uh, of what they might think if we ask the question. So some of the questions they're not going to ask, but the second one they do. And the question is, essentially, if you're the Messiah, then where's Elijah? And the disciples in the nation of Israel all knew that prior to Messiah would be Elijah. That if anyone comes claiming to be the Messiah, the natural question that would have to be asked is, where's Elijah? Because Elijah is to precede Messiah. In fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, God speaking through Malachi, his last words before God signs off in the Old Testament, we have the intertestamental 400 years of silence. The last words of God to the nation will be in in Malachi chapter 4, that behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So this is not something they came up on their own. This is something God told them, that before Messiah, Elijah... So look at Jesus' response in verses 11 through 13. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. So the response of Jesus is that Elijah will come before Messiah. The scripture will be fulfilled. But I tell you that Elijah already came. Jesus is telling the disciples that all those prophecies concerning Elijah are fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. You'll remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has already told them this. In Matthew eleven thirteen. he said, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come, who will come. So he has already told them that John is coming in the spirit of Elijah. And in Luke 1.13, you'll remember when the angel of the Lord shows up to Zacharias and tells him about his future son, John the Baptist, who will be born. The angel of the Lord says there, and he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. The angel of the Lord quotes from Malachi chapter 4, angel of the Lord is biblical. They know their scripture. They quote scripture and say, John is going to come in the spirit of Elijah. He will be the forerunner. So you've got Jesus and the angel of the Lord both testifying that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Elijah. You don't want to argue with Jesus and angels. So they identify John the Baptist fulfilling this prophecy. So the question is, why didn't the nation of Israel 
And in fact, a better question, why didn't the disciples recognize John as fulfilling these prophecies concerning Elijah? Well, the simple answer is that when they thought of Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Messiah and restoring the nation of Israel, they thought of restoring the physical temple. They thought of restoring Israel to a place of supremacy. They thought of overthrowing the Roman government. And what they failed to understand was that John was not coming to restore a physical temple or the nation. He was coming to restore their hearts. That as he came to prepare the way of of Messiah, he was not interested in their politics, their buildings, or their bank accounts. He was interested in their hearts. But this was not the kind of forerunner that they wanted, and so they rejected him, and ultimately they killed him. And Jesus says in a similar way, I'm not going to be the kind of Messiah they want either, and they're going to kill me too. See, they wanted a Jesus and a John That would change their financial, their physical, and their political situation. And when neither of them acted in the way that they wanted, they rejected them. And here's my question. Are are people still doing this today? That they simply want a Jesus who will change their financial situation. They want a Jesus who will change their physical situation, their relational situation. And when Jesus doesn't come through in the way they want, he doesn't act as they want him to or as they expect him to. They cast him to the side and they take their toys and they go home. And I want to be very clear with you this morning. Jesus didn't come to make you rich. He didn't come to further your political cause. He didn't come so that you could have perfect health. He came to give you eternal life, peace with God, and a relationship with himself. And I want to be very clear. If you're contemplating a relationship with Jesus today, if you trust in him and you follow him and you become a disciple of Christ, things may not get easier for you. Some of the greatest people of faith I know, I visited them in a hospital this week, and they are struggling physically in an immense way. Some of the greatest people of faith I know, the people with the greatest faith I know have some of the smallest bank accounts. And I know of people that just just these past years have trusted in Christ and it didn't make their relational life better. It made a more strained situation with parents and siblings. And so I can't promise you that Jesus will change these areas of your life or make them better, but I can promise you that you'll have a relationship with the one who loves you, created you, and died for you. I can promise you that he'll never leave you. I can promise you that he'll forgive you and give you peace. And I can promise you that you will now, through him, have a sense of purpose and hope and a future. And you'll find fulfillment in him that nothing else in this world can offer. In other words, here it is. You cannot take Jesus as you want him to be. You have to take him as he is. And he is God. And he is your only hope of salvation. So Jesus is confirming his identity and the fact that he perfectly fulfills scripture. But then look at verses 14 through 18. It says, when they came to to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls in the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him and the boy was, was cured at once. And I think right here we have um, kind of a microcosm of Jesus' mission. That Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration and he encounters this father with a son who's controlled by Satan. Now we don't find that here, but in Mark's gospel, here we just see that he's, he's a lunatic, means moonstruck, 
But in Mark's gospel, he gives us a little more detail and tells us that he's controlled by Satan. And again, we have a beautiful picture here of, of Christ's mission. He's going to come down. Christ is always descending to the depths. He's the God who leaves the glory of heaven, enters into the filth of humanity, and dies for our sins. The Sermon on the Mount, he's on the mountain of teaching, and there he comes down from the mountain and encounters the leper. Here he's on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter says, can't we just say right here? No, we can't. we got to go down, and he's going to go down in the valley, and here he's going to encounter a son who is controlled by Satan. This boy is lost. He is self-destructive. He's falling into fires. He's throwing himself into water. He's on a path of complete and total destruction. And this is a picture of man apart from the light and life of Christ. This is all of us, right? Before, before faith in Christ, this was all of our lives, that we were in the darkness as to who God was, and we weren't living according to his ways, and our path was a path of self-destruction and, and self-injurious ways. Uh, you, you ever try to walk around a room in the dark? You'll eventually stub your toe. You're going to hurt yourself. And there's a world of people out there, just like we were prior to faith in Christ, that are walking in the darkness of sin and Satan, and they're stubbing their toe on life. And that's this boy. And so this father recognizes that his son's controlled by Satan, and he brings him to the disciples, and they can't do anything with him, which is interesting because in Matthew 10, he sends the disciples out on a mission, and he gives them authority over demons. But here it seems that what they used to be successful at, they're not no longer succeeding in. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But, but Jesus, now they, they realize I, these guys can't help. And so the father, where does he go? He's going to go directly to Jesus. And he brings the boy to Jesus. And Jesus expresses his frustration in verse 17. And boy, it's strong. Uh, there's some people that just want to put this off on the Pharisees. I, don't believe, I, I believe he's talking to his own disciples. He's frustrated. He says, uh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? I mean, Jesus knows, if nothing else we see in Jesus' frustration, we see an area of their ministry or a lesson here that they got to get. This is the same lesson he was trying to teach them with the 5,000 and the 4,000 that you've got to rely upon me. You cannot do it. I'm calling you to a mission that you can't complete. You can't feed 5,000. You can't feed 4,000 with a few loaves and fish. You can't do it. And you can't transfer this child from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You can't do it. But in me, you can. So he knows if he's going to send them out to succeed at this mission, they've got to get this lesson. So they bring the boy to Jesus. You have the, the kingdom of darkness in this child. Meet up with the light of Christ. And in one word, one rebuke, the child is cured. It's a, it's a picture of salvation. It's Christ coming down. And we have somebody, more often than not, if you know Christ, it's because somebody introduced you to Jesus. You came to Christ. You had an encounter with Jesus. You recognized your sin. You trusted in Jesus. And at the moment of your asking, you were saved like a thief on the cross. Beautiful picture of salvation. This is the mission of Jesus. He's giving a picture, just like he did in the feet of the five thousand. It's a picture of the mission that he's going to give to them. It's his mission because it was the Father's mission. It's going to be the disciples' mission. And so look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? In other words, I think the disciples are beginning to grasp this is our mission. We know this is what we're called to do. But why are we failing we know this is what we were called to, to do. We, we know we're, we're called to transfer people from the kingdom of Satan into your kingdom. But, but why do we fail? And, and listen, church, this is the question we ought to be asking ourselves when we fail at the greater things of God. When we're not seeing people come to faith in Christ, when we're not seeing lives transformed by the gospel message, we ought to, taught to be, be taught to ask, why are we failing? All this other stuff doesn't really matter if we're not accomplishing what God called us to do. And so the disciples asked, why do we fail? Well, look at the response of Jesus in verses 
20 through 21, and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We don't have time this morning. That 21 should be in brackets, meaning it's not in the earliest manuscripts. But we do have it in Mark 9, 29. The same verse, apart from fasting, is right there. So we know uh, that this is God's word. But Jesus' response to their question of why they're failing, he says, because of the littleness of your faith. Jesus says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed. And it's a simple lesson there. We get caught up on the picture of the mustard seed. The, the, the message is really simple. It's not about the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. Not how much you, in fact, this same story in Mark's gospel, when the father brings the son, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's not the size of our faith. It's not how much faith we have. It's who we believe in. He says, if you'll believe in me, if you'll trust in me, then you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll be moved, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, most most believe that this is a reference to Zechariah 4, 1 through 7. In Zechariah 4, you've got Zerubbabel, and he wants to rebuild the temple of God, and the temple lies in ruins. It's a mess. And he's looking at this temple, and he wants to rebuild it to the glory of God. But what stands in his way? What stands in his way is this mountain called the Persian Empire. And they can't move that mountain. In fact, this is the context where it says, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He says, you can't do it. But God tells the nation, if you will trust in me, that big old huge mountain, if you'll trust in me, I'll just move it out of your way. And I will enable you to do what I've called you to do. Well, right here, the disciples, they've not been called Uh, to build a temple, but they've been called to build the church on the foundation of faith in Christ alone. And what stands in their way? What stands in their way is this big mountain called Satan. And they can't move that mountain on their own. But what Jesus says is that in the context of this mission, if you will trust in me, if you will rely upon me, I have the ability to move that mountain so that you can complete the work that I've called you to do. Remember, he told them, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan can't stop me from completing what I've called you to do when you rely upon me. And, and remember, this is in the context of, of the mission. You know, most people, they want to use this verse, say, well, I believe I've got $100 in my pocket, and it's automatically there. That's not, th- th- this is in the context of mission, isn't it? It's in the context of doing this work that God has called us to do, that when we trust in Christ completely, he has the ability to do that, which we, we can't do on our own. And then the question becomes, how do we tap into this faith? How do we tap into this source of power? Well, he gives us the key in verse 21. It's by great and desperate prayer. That the key to knowing success in this mission, this is so critical, the key to knowing success in this mission, the difference between success and failure in the mission that God has given to us is prayer. Isn't it amazing? He's made this incredibly simple for us. That prayer is the means by which we access God's power to complete the purpose, and the mission that he has given to us. But you know, as as simple as this is, you know one of the things that I've learned experientially in my own life, and I learned this to be true in the church, you know the most difficult things to get Christians to do? Pray. You want to kill a meeting? Call it a prayer meeting. You will struggle to get anybody to show up. It's amazing to me, Christians will not tend to pray until our backs are against the wall. We will use it as a last resort. And the one lesson Jesus knows these guys got to get is they can't do this. That apart from me, you can do nothing. 
But when you lean upon me and my power, nothing will be impossible to you. Why don't we pray more? We want to see God's power in our church. We want to complete this task. You know we can't do it. And what we end up doing, you know what we do? We fail at what God's called us to do. And you know what we do? We just lower the bar of success and we bring it down to an achievable, attainable level. And you know what? We're far too easily impressed with what we can do. Uh, I was reminded as I was reading this, you know, Peter and John in Acts chapter 2, they're going up to the temple and they see the lame beggar. Uh, He's begging for money. Peter and John tell him, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He gets up and walks. And at one point in church history, the Pope, Innocent II, is talking to Thomas Aquinas and he's counting out all his money. And the Pope looks at Thomas Aquinas and says, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas replies and says, yes, but neither can she say, get up and walk. Meaning, listen, that money's not the purpose that God called us to. He called us to transfer people to the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his dear son, to take people who are spiritually lame and make them walk. And we're not doing it. None of that matters. Listen, when we get to a place of being desperate enough, if you look at every great movement of God in this nation, whether it be the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the great layman's prayer revival of 1858, the circumstances of each of these were always the same. You had the encroachment of the world and Satan upon the church. You had a ch- the church got to a place where they got so fed up with the world encroaching upon them that they decided that we're just going to hit our knees and we're going to pray and we're not going to let go of God until we see a movement of his power in our generation. And folks, and if, we, if we don't see the encroachment of the world upon the church today, your eyes are blind. There has The encroachment of the world, the world and Satan in the church over the past 10 years, it, it surpasses anything we've seen in the past 50 years combined. And the sad part is, often I think of it this way, we put it off to another generation. What we say is, well, it's not going to affect us, because the reality is it probably won't. We're probably going to be okay. Most of us in this room, we're going to be okay. You know who it's going to affect? It's going to affect those little ones down the hall. But listen, you can't program prayer. I've tried. You can't program it. You can't preach people to pray. I've tried. But when people get desperate enough and they get tired of failing at the greater things of God, boy, we'll hit our knees in prayer. And that's when we'll see a great movement of God in our nation. So he's telling them, you've got to rely upon me. You rely upon me, I'll move mountains to complete the mission. Satan can't stand in your way. Nothing will be impossible to you. Then look at verses 22 through 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. We don't have a lot of time to step in here, but, but these guys, the more I study this, the more I feel sympathy for these guys. Jesus is unloading so much on them. But imagine this. This is a guy you love. This is a guy you gave up everything to follow. And he keeps telling you he's going to die. And they don't understand the whole resurrection deal. And I can't imagine how difficult this was for them to get their minds around. Well, look, look with me, verses 24 through 27, very briefly, and then we'll wrap it up. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs? A poll tax from their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. It's another one of these crazy, crazy, mysterious passages. But you see the scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming to Jesus. They're trying to entrap him. They're looking for a chink in the armor. 
And on this occasion, they don't go directly to Jesus. They question one of his disciples. Maybe we'll find a weakness there. So they go to Peter, and they ask Peter, does your master, does your rabbi pay the two-shekel two temple tax? And you've got to remember, this was a biblical tax. This was set up in the book of Exodus. It was for the maintenance of the temple. This is, a, this is not a part of their man-made tradition. So they're asking, they're asking Peter, is your master, is he biblical? Is he following scripture? Is he obedient to the word? And Peter says, yes. And then they go into the house, and Jesus knows the, knows the conversation that's just occurred. And he asks Peter, what do you think, Peter? From whom do men, uh, the, the kings of, of men, collect taxes? From sons or from strangers? And the answer was simple. And kings in that day were autocratic, and they didn't tax their own family. I mean, you don't tax your family to live in your house. They didn't tax their own family to live in a castle. They taxed strangers. And so Peter says, well, they collect it from strangers. The implication is incredibly clear. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the son, and that temple's my father's house, and I don't have to pay this tax. I mean, Peter has just declared, you're the son of the living God. God just declared from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Jesus saying, I am the son. I don't have to pay the tax. We don't have to pay this silly tax. But the lesson is in verse 27. What does he say in verse 27? He says there, but so that we do not offend them. Jesus says, do we have to pay this tax? No, nah, we don't have to pay it. Are we going to pay it? Yes. Why are we going to pay it? So that we don't give a person a reason not to listen to our message. It's a really simple lesson that Jesus knows these disciples got to get. Because when they go out there, he's teaching them that sometimes you're going to lay aside your personal rights in favor of this gospel mission. To accentuate the gospel, you'll sometimes lay aside your personal rights. Now, I've grown so weary of people taking me to God's word to prove that they've got a right to do something. I'm going to tell you something. I really believe the people that God uses are not the people who are looking to defend their rights, but people who are interested in making the gospel beautiful to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Listen, if you're more focused on your rights than you are on the beauty of the gospel, you've got some misplaced priorities. Jesus says you Whenever it comes down to, to making the gospel message known or your personal rights, you lay down your... Per- and, and who's the best example of this? Jesus, who left the glory of heaven and died on a cross. He had a right to stay in glory, but he gave it up so that we could know salvation. Well, then the question becomes, that sounds all well and good, but who's going to pay the tax? <laughs> yeah, we're going to give up our personal rights, but I don't have no money for this tax. And Jesus says, Peter, go down there, throw a line in the water, pull out a fish, open that fish's mouth, you'll find a shekel, go pay it for you and me. Now, that's a, that's a really cool story for another day. But here's the point. He's teaching Peter, listen, when you give up your personal rights, sometimes it's, it'll cost you. Sometimes you're going to make sacrifices, but he's teaching them. I can pull a coin out of fish's mouth to meet your needs if I need to. And remember, this is the context of missions. What he's teaching these guys, he's instructing them, is listen to me. You're going to go out there and Peter's going to have to, and he will learn this lesson. Peter's going to give up all kinds of personal rights, things that he could have done. And the disciples are going to give up personal rights. And they're going to ultimately give up their life. But will God provide their needs in every occasion? Absolutely he will. And the same goes for you, that as you give your life to Christ's mission, sometimes you're going to lay aside some personal Right, sometimes you're going to make sacrifices in big ways and in small ways. And you may begin to wonder who's going to meet my needs. And the promise of God 
is my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You just be faithful. You make the gospel known. You do everything you can to accentuate the gospel message and I'll meet your needs. Do you see the point of this text? Do you see the beauty of this? I am the Christ. I may not be acting the way you want me to, but I've not come to accomplish your purposes but my Father's. And I may not be the Jesus you want, but I'm the Jesus you need. And I am God, and I'm going to conquer the grave. Trust me. And if you'll engage in my mission, if you'll rely upon me, I'll supply you with the power and all the provision you need to complete my work. You've heard me say this before, but there ought to be no more confident, optimistic people in all the world. You read the book of Acts. You know what you see? You see a powerful church that's encroaching on the world. These are not hide-in-the-corner Christians in Acts. They are taking ground for the gospel. They are praying. They are relying upon the power of God, and they're seeing him move. One of my favorite stories, you know, Peter, he's in jail. James has just been beheaded, you remember? And what is the church doing? They're praying. They just believed that God could do whatever he wanted. Nothing like a good beheading to make the church start praying. And they start praying. we got to have you, God. And what happens? God shows up. And the the world couldn't stop the church. Couldn't stop them. You see a powerful church encroaching on the world. And what do you see today? It's flipped. Far too often you see Christians sitting in a corner. What are we going to do? The world's going to get us. And listen, we can't do what God's called us to do. But when we rely upon his power, nothing becomes impossible to us. Let's rely upon the Lord. Let's be faithful to his mission. And we can trust that he won't let us down. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning, God, for the beauty of Jesus, that he is who he said he was, that he is God, he's our only hope of salvation. God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, maybe they've never even thought about uh, their own spiritual condition this morning. Maybe they've thought, never thought about the things of eternity. God, I pray this morning you draw them to yourself. I pray that somehow this morning, maybe they're looking at all this and saying, why in the world would you guys give up everything for Jesus? God, I pray this morning you'd open their eyes to the beauty and the glory of Christ who gave up everything so that they could know you and have forgiveness. God, I pray for those of us that do know you. God, forgive us when we've not relied upon you. God, forgive us when we've lowered the level of success down to an attainable level. Forgive us for thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Forgive us for neglecting you in prayer. And God, I pray that we would be desperate for you, that we might see you move in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our nation, in our church for the glory of Christ, the growth of his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ, trust in him, know his forgiveness, know his hope, know his peace. If you'd like to trust in Christ, we'll have pastors here at the front. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you just want to pray here at the altar. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. You respond as we sing.